Hello and welcome to Science Conversations, a series examining the intersection of science and faith. I'm Dr Barry Harker and my guest today is Dr John Ashton. This is my eighth conversation with Dr Ashton based upon his book Evolution Impossible, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. Last time we noted the geological evidences for a catastrophic global flood. Today we're examining the historical evidence for a worldwide flood. Dr Ashton is a chemist with a PhD in epistemology, a branch of philosophy dealing with the nature of knowledge and truth. Welcome, John. Hi, Barry. Good to be here again. Do you know we're over halfway in the series now? Oh, wow. The time's passed. (laughs) So we're on the downhill run now. John, in our last conversation we discussed significant geological evidence for a catastrophic global flood. Mm, Yes. And that makes the flood story in the book of Genesis of legitimate scientific interest. But there's also some intriguing evidence that an event of this nature is embedded in the historical memories of cultures widely distributed across the world. What's the significance of this evidence for science and religion? Right, well... There is actually an amazing amount of uh, historical records for the flood. And the other thing that has always fascinated me is that when we look at the historical records, and particularly chronologies, they run back to about 2000 BC, and then they they all end. Um, I haven't been able to find any uh, chronologies, credible chronologies, that run back much before about 2000 BC, apart from the Bible account. Now, the Bible account does go back uh, to the flood in terms of a a chronology and then even a pre-flood chronology uh, back to creation. But when we look at other secular records, they all seem to run back to about 2000 BC. So that's consistent with the biblical record then? Very close to it, yes. Mm. Uh, And uh, and this is something that really... um, you know, pointed something out to me, hang on, you know, we, we learn about all these really long ages and, uh, uh, you know, sort of particular cultures going back 40,000 years here. And it seems that each culture, whether it be in China or Australia, they, they want to push their cultures back as far as they can. But a lot of these very, very uh, supposedly, you know, 40,000 years dates are based on, again, uh, carbon-14 dating, which we'll look at um, uh, I think uh, a little bit down the track and say, well, hang on, that really needs to be corrected and brought forth by, you know, almost an order of magnitude. And the other thing um, is, too, that it's based on sort of looking at shards of pottery and, and these sort of things that, again, uh, have all been based on estimates that really haven't been proven back for those times. So this is why I've been very interested in trying to track down actual historical records and particularly accounts by uh, ancient historians. Now, when I was putting this chapter of the book together, um, I made contact uh, with a a chappie at Princeton uh, who was in uh, one of the uh, archaeology sections there and his interest was actually uh, studying uh, the writings of ancient scientists and philosophers or uh, particularly uh, those writers that had made observations about nature. So that was his area of research. He was actually uh, the director of the the institute. there uh, at Princeton, 
and um, w- uh, we got on really well. And he provided me with um, quite a lot of references to ancient documents, um, well, and, and copies of the ancient documents themselves so that uh, I could actually go through and, um, and look for this, uh, what data was actually there. And uh, this, this led to, you know, some exciting, um, some exciting findings and actually correlations between, actually chrono- uh, between reported chronologies. And, um, yeah, so, so writing this was a very exciting uh, chapter. Of course, it's not an area that I normally work in and research. My main area is in the biomedical science uh, area. But I've all, always had a very, very strong interest in, in, in history. And, uh, and, of course, you know, as you know, reading uh, from a doctor in epistemology, uh, looking at what, what is the evidence, how can we know? And so, again, looking and analysing the historical evidence has been something that um, uh, has been of, of quite a bit of interest to me. Mm. Now, John, there's different types of flood narratives. Mm. I think one is legendary and the other is historical. How do you tell the difference between the two? Right, well, some of the um, the the legend ones uh, that are, I believe aren't true they they they, they have just uh, descriptors that you you know just don't fit reality like there might be a, a story where uh, a giant uh, fish towed the boat uh, to a to a mountain uh, the boat was in the shape of a cube we know a cube would be very unstable in water um, or the boat that uh, saved the people at this time was a giant basket um, we we know that they you know they're legendary accounts and I, I guess perhaps at this stage we should go back and uh, and perhaps look at what the the Bible account says just mm-hmm. just very quickly because really um, the Bible account of the flood was taken quite seriously up to the mid-1800s. Um, indeed, in, in terms of geology, as taught by, say, leading universities like Oxford, they taught geology in the context of this flood geology um, and people were looking at that time. Now, of course, we know the influence of Hutton and uh, Lyle, and particularly Lyle's uh, book on the principles of geology where he's looking at strata and these long ages. That, that changed a lot of that uh, thinking at the time. Was much of this information known in those times? Much of this historical legendary material, was that available? No, a lot of those, well, some of those documents were available about um, uh, accounts of the... Uh, of the flood, uh, I, I guess some of them have been. There was a lot of archaeological discoveries in the Middle East in the in the eighteen hundreds. So some of this is, is is sort of running parallel. I think the point is that the two weren't put together. Mm. So as these archaeological findings were uh, reported, and some of them are in in fair fairly obscure sort of journals. So geologists might not read a, uh, an article from say uh, the uh, a, a review of books that might be in sort of a library sort of uh, journal looking at history of libraries. So they w- wouldn't connect uh, those sort of things. But I think when we look at the, at, at the biblical account, you know, it, it talks about that man had become extremely wicked and that God was extremely disappointed with this. Now, the type of w- wickedness is described as being really horrendous much violence, huge amount of violence. 
And so God um, had decided to uh, to put an end to this. Well, you know, this this is the biblical account. And one of the things that fascinated me was that as I was reading some of the accounts that have been recorded by uh, secular historians, um, such as uh, Professor David Lemming at uh, the University of California, who studied a lot of these flood myths. And the interesting thing about the flood myths was that there was a consistency around the world. Now, a lot of people have said, oh, okay, you know, sure, we admit there were some flood myths in, in the Mesopotamian area. There was probably some local flooding there or, um, you know, the Black Sea, the Caspian Sea, I forget which one, sort of flooded down there in that area. But... When you look at it, there, there's a similar story in, in, in the Americas, North and South America. Um, uh, the indigenous Australian people have a story. The African people have uh, stories along these lines. And one of the things is that stood out for me, for example, in, uh, say, the North American account was that, again, people have become extremely wicked. They were not caring for children. So, so all these stories uh, that have been preserved in these cultures have an account of the wickedness of man. They've become extremely wicked and he was destroyed by a flood. There was a flood that came. Uh, And many of the stories have the people saved in a boat. Some of them list the same number of people as in the Bible, eight. So there's a huge number of these accounts and, um, and, and some biblical scholars have actually gone through gone through the evidence and, and tabulated, you know, out of the hundreds of flood accounts that have been recorded from all around the world. I, th- I think there's over 200 substantiated accounts. When they look at the comparisons, you know, a high percentage involve, you know, people being wicked, uh, salvation of a, of a few in a boat, um, at that particular time, some mentioned characteristics like a rainbow. So it's a whole lot of support from the biblical account, from this extra biblical material. You do get differences, don't you? You get, you do get some differences. I guess that could be explained by the, the similarities could be explained by a common origin for the story. Yes, and, and I think that's the important point. And the differences could be explained just simply by time and distance away from the well, event. That, well, that's right, and characteristic of, of their of their uh, culture. Um, so, yeah, so it, it's quite... So tell us a bit more about the biblical account. Well, of course, uh, the, the, the biblical account describes uh, the size of the, uh, the boat. Uh, it's, it's a very realistic description. Again, I forget the ratios, but the ratios are approximately the, the same ratios that you'd have in a, in a sea kayak or a, or a, a type of uh, vessel that would uh, be really good for withstanding very, very rough weather. Um, I know that um, a, a geologist uh, has done, uh, a creationist geologist has, has done quite a, uh, an extensive uh, review of the, the size of the ark. And indeed, a number of Bible commentaries talk about this and how really it, has, it had a very large capacity. It, it could, certainly could have carried a lot of kinds, and I think this is one of the understandings too. When we think in terms of you know animals like the cats, you've got lions, tigers, and leopards that can can interbreed. So there are probably only a couple of types 
of cats that were carrying a lot of genetic code, and the same with bears and dogs. And, um, and of course, it was only the, the land-dwelling, land-breathing animals that were, were taken on to the ark. So, and a lot of them maybe have, have been as juveniles, um, the, the, these sort of things. So, I mean, we don't necessarily know, you know, everything that, that, that went on, but it's a, very, it's a very feasible account in terms of the time. It says that it, um, uh, the, the waters rose for 150 days, that it rained, there was action, uh, a, a huge amount of deluge over a period of 40 days. But one of the important factors is it talks about the fountains of the deep opening up and sort of we, we have this picture of massive disruption of the Earth's surface by underground waters coming out. And I think the, the picture that many people have in their mind is, okay, we had all this rain falling, but that's, that's only a very small part of the picture. Sure, it rained, but the, what we believe is and understand that a massive amount of water was subterranean water under pressure that was released violently and massively smashed up the surface of the earth at that time. It was a horrendous, massive disruption of the earth's surface. And this is what we see from the geological record as well, that the structures were broken up, they were pounded, we have the rocks that are converted to sandstone, I mean the sand had to come from somewhere, it's ground up rock, and all these conglomerates, uh, and so this is the picture that we have, not of just some you know terrain and you, you had heavy rain like we you know had, might have in a, a massive flood situation. It's very different, it's a catastrophic flood situation described in the Bible. So we have basically evidence that seems to indicate that the biblical account is actually historical rather than legendary. Yes, and, and I guess what I'm interested in, perhaps we can uh, just review, and I, I, I mean, because it's not an area in, uh, that I work in all the time, uh, just to refresh my memory, I might read some sections um, just from the chapter that I wrote in the book when I was researching this, sure. this area. and. Um, uh, and so I'll just read a, a couple of sections here. And, uh, so, and I've written, Firstly, the traditions of many ancient peoples from all over the world preserve in one form or another the account of a worldwide flood from which only a few people were saved. Archaeologist Professor André Parot, who served as Director of, and Chief of the National Museums of France, explains that there are both legendary-type narratives about a massive flood, such as the Epic of Gilgamesh, and um, Gilgamesh, rather, as well as brief references to the flood in, as a historic fact, such as in the King Lists of the World Blundell Prism. Now, it's very interesting if we look up about that uh, World Blundell Prism, which is in the Ashmolean uh, Museum of Archaeology at Oxford, um, they say, well, you know, th this really is a, a, a mixture of fact and fantasy. But really it's a list of the, of the king lists. And it, as it goes through the list of the king lists, it describes this flood. And this is really a, a historic list. Now, one of the things when I looked at a lot of these archaeological accounts, they, the modern commentators say, well, hang on, uh, really, we, we've got these ancient documents, but really they're fantasy. And, and so there's this consistent attempt to educate the modern public the hang on, there isn't evidence that supports the biblical account. Whereas in actual fact, here we have all this evidence that's been recorded that um, collaborates the biblical account of the flood. So here we have this king list, 
that collaborates the history of the flood. Now, admittedly, the ages that the kings live as recorded uh, seem to be somewhat exaggerated, but we know that they were historical kings that are listed there. Uh, for example, in the, Samaritan, in the Sumerian narrative of the flood, a fragment which was found in uh, Nippur in Babylonia and dated back to the 19th century BC, the gods decide to send a flood to destroy the human race, but King Zesudra is saved in a giant ship that he has built in accordance with instructions given to him by a god who has taken pity on him. In another account, in the Assyrian version found on the cuneiform tablets discovered in Nineveh in the library of Ashurbanipal, who lived in the 7th century BC, a hero by the name of Gilgamesh goes in search of Atnapistim, who survived the flood. And Atnapistim, and I'm not very good pronouncing this, tells Gilgamesh the story of the flood and how God Ea advised him to build a vessel to a specified plan to bring his family, craftsmen and animals in it. A flood and a storm is then unleashed and the whole world is submerged and mankind is destroyed. The boat later comes to rest on a mountain and several birds are sent out and one of the birds, a raven, does not return, survivors leave the ark. So again, very similar to the biblical account but just doesn't have that ring of historical accuracy. The ancient Greek literature also describes this flood, which is explicitly mentioned by Pindar, who lived in the 5th century BC, uh, with a full version found in the Compendium of uh, Biblico Ether. Anyway, I can't pronounce that as a reference in my book. Um, and in the Greek account, the, uh, the god Zeus decides to destroy the human race. But King Ducalon is advised uh, by his father Prometheus to build an ark in which he and his wife can survive. The rains come and flood the land, and after floating for nine days, the ark comes to rest on a mountain. Uh, so this is very interesting. When we look at these uh, accounts and people say, oh, there could have been local flooding, tsunamis, all these sort of things. But hang on, these accounts are talking about rain. Um, so, you know, we, we, we have to look at the analysis of this. A Roman version recorded by Ovid. Uh, here again, the gods to destroy humanity, which has become corrupt by sending a great flood. Um, a flood is also mentioned in, the, in a Sanskrit document of the 6th century. Uh, this story uh, from ancient India tells of Manhu, who was advised by a fish that a flood was coming that would destroy the whole of mankind. He was told to build a boat, and during the flood, the fish towed the boat to a resting place on a mountain shop. Uh, the Mandi people of Mali in central West Africa have a creation myth about an ark that landed on a mountain. The ark contained the original eight ancestors of humans and all the first animals and plants. So, so that's... Um, you know, quite interesting. Now, these are recorded by uh, secular historians who've, who have studied, like uh, language experts, uh, like Professor Lemming at uh, the University of California there at Santa Barbara. So he, here we have these accounts, and again, very close to the uh, biblical account. The Aradan Aborigines of uh, Northern Australia have a dreamtime story of creation that has gone wrong and was cleansed by a flood. Uh, the Arikara Indians of the American Plains have a story that tells of giants that had no respect for their creator and were destroyed by a great flood with only a few good giants preserved. 
so there are many uh, examples. Um, uh, Professor Limming talks about their examples in Eskimo country uh, culture. Uh, uh, the peoples of Greenland, the Cheyenne Indians of the American Plains, the Navajo Indians of the American Southwest, um, the Yuma and Pima Indians of uh, Arizona, the Pomo and Salina Indians of California, the Impura people of Brazil, the ancient uh, Mescas of Peru, uh, the Mayan people of Guatemala. Um, and so uh, from around the world... We've got these accounts of people being wicked and God destroying those people by a flood and a few people being saved that became the ancestors of, um, uh, you know, the current, the current population. Um, so, and even, um, you know, look, it, one of the fascinating things that I know when I've talked to people at it just blows their mind. We talk about Egypt. Egypt's regularly in the news. We have the pyramids and so forth. Egypt is named after Noah's grandson. Tell us about that. Well, we know that um, Noah is recorded to have three sons, Ham, Sham and Japheth. And Egypt is often referred to as the the land of Ham or uh, the land of Mizraim. Now, Mizram was one of Ham's sons. And the Greek translation of Mizram is Egypt. Now, I, I've got an old Encyclopedia Britannica uh, atlas at home, and it, um, it doesn't have the name Egypt in there. It has the name Mizra for Egypt. So, you know, this is in English. It's <laughs> so you're really making historical connections here. Oh, yes, very much so. I mean, you think about it. You had the, the land Rhodesia was named after Cecil Rhodes. Uh, you got Disneyland named after Walt Disney. It's not Mickey Mouse Land. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, you, these places are named, were named after real people. Um, you know, if, if someone goes to a particular area and they found a town, they're often, they name the town after the people who lived there or who founded the town or something like that. And it, it's interesting that Bill Cooper, he, he was a, he's a British historian, um, he did a, a, a study, uh, he published a book, it's called After the Flood, and he showed that when you go back through the European histories of their kings, so the genealogies of their kings, so many of the European kings from different parts of Europe trace their genealogies back to Japheth that we know, again, one of the other sons of, uh, of Noah. But I think um, the, the, the account of Egypt is, um, uh, uh, and, and the fact that we have this country, Egypt, named after that, and for many, and oh, oh, through many accounts in late uh, ancient history, uh, Egypt was referred to as the land of Ham, or as I said, uh, the, the land of Mizraim. Uh, so, uh, and, uh, and there was a, an Egyptian historian by the name of Manantho. Uh, uh, historians use a lot of his um, data to try and construct the history of Egypt. Um, he was a, a priest uh, in the temple of uh, Heliopolis during the Greek era, about 270 BC. Uh, so it's well before the Christian era. Uh, and uh, that was the, uh, one of the centres of learning in the ancient world. Now, Manetho, I think, 
in writing his history of Egypt, also mentions Noah as an historical figure. Now, a lot of Egyptian history is based upon Manetho's account. Yes, that's exactly. So mm. if they're not accepting Noah as an historical figure, then that would call into question the other history that he's written, <laughs> wouldn't it? Well, that, well that's right, exactly. You, it's like, you know, it's like with the geological record, you know, um, they want to have oh, all the slow deposition of all the layers and hence a long period of time. But, but hang on, there's all this evidence of catastrophic, you know, uh, uh, movement of vast amounts of, of sediment, which must have happened in a, a short period of time, you know, the rapid burial of dinosaurs and all these sort of things. So it's the same sort of thing. So Menentha recorded the history of Egypt at that time and wrote that after the flood, Ham, the son of Noah, begat Egyptus, or Mestrum, who was the first to establish himself in the area now known as Egypt at the time when the tribes began to disperse. Now, he's talking there about the dispersion that occurred after the Tower of Babel, when the, lang- when the people on the earth had one language and the language God confused their languages because, again, they were becoming too proud, too self-sufficient and... Um, and that was what God. God, God at that was time. really concerned about another tyranny, wasn't he? Yes, really I think basically. so. Yes, and so, um, and again, so Menantho, obviously, um, yeah, he he was the Egyptian historian that time, the prominent Egyptian historian pre the Christian era, um, and that and that's what he records. Um, but there, there's a there's a lot more. There, there's 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 much more we can talk about. Uh, for example, in um, Menentho also talks about the dispersion taking place five years after the birth of Peleg. Now Peleg was a great 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 grandson of Noah, born uh, just over a hundred years after the flood. And so, essentially, um, what Menentho is saying is that the dispersion occurred or the um, peoples began moving away from the flood area, which we believe was around the southern area of, or where, where the Na'ak came to rest, we believe, was roughly around the southern part of uh, Turkey. Uh, maybe it was a little bit further down in the Middle East, but, but somewhere in there. And that from there, the different families dispersed. And so the, the traditional view is that Japheth went north up and became the, um, the European nations, uh, that Ham went to Egypt um, and then became the, uh, the nations that moved down into Africa, and that Shem moved across and became the Asians and into the Americans. And also the Semitic <clears throat> peoples. Hmm, of, yes. the, of the Middle East. That's right, yes. So, And so we can see that this then happened about 100 years after the flood and uh, there were about four generations uh, of people. And, of course, uh, we know at that time they had, were having a lot of children. So in actual fact, there were a lot of people um, at that time. Um, now, there's some other very interesting uh, chronologies that I came across. And so um, Jay Lampre's uh, Classical dic- Dictionary, uh, containing copious accounts of all the proper names mentioned in ancient authors. So this is a, a secular work uh, published in 1812. And he states, uh, according to the calculations of Constantine Manassas, the kingdom of Egypt lasted... 
1,663 years from its beginning under Mizraim, the son of Ham, in 2,188 BC, to the conquest by Cambyses in 525 BC. And so here, again, we can see that um, this, uh, again, uh, from this older historical record, this historian, um, ha- essentially this, the founding of Egypt is 2188 BC. And this is consistent so, with the flood account, isn't it, really? Well, it's consistent with uh, Menetho's uh, date that um, the uh, tribes began moving away about 2,195 BC. So essentially what uh, the this account is from uh, Manassas, as recorded by Lem Prier, is that um, Egypt was founded um, about seven years after the tribes dispersed. Mm. So it's quite consistent so when you think, would, yeah. yeah, the time it would take to move across there. I mean, easily to travel that way on a camel, you travel a lot, just in a few months, you could travel down there. Uh, but essentially, obviously, they'd found a place and they'd settled and, and that's where they'd set up their community and their, their little kingdom. So that, uh, uh, this is a, a really, really strong um, uh, correlation there. So it's uh, in very, very close agreement with that uh, date that we would calculate uh, for the, the flood. Now, it's interesting, uh, calculating the date of the flood itself is problematic. Uh, we have quite good um, uh, chronology recorded in the Bible, but it's all based on the date for the construction of Solomon's temple. Um, and we're not sure exactly what that date was. There's a range of about a 40-year period um, that are used by different historians and that to, to pin that date down, it's roughly between 960 BC and about uh, uh, 1002 BC, somewhere uh, in that uh, 40 or 50 year period. So we know we're pretty close to the date, so, uh, so that's uh, uh, another one. Um, now, another, another count uh, that I found, uh, Thomas uh, Morris uh, was the assistant uh, librarian at the London Museum in the uh, early 1800s, and he published a very interesting report after visiting the, the ruins of Babylon. So again, this was um, published uh, back in uh, 1817 in the London Review and Library Journal. Now, we mentioned earlier that geologists probably may not have read that in terms of doing their research. So so this is where this was published. But what he wrote was this. When Alexander conquered Babylon, the Chaldean priests informed Callisthenes that they had recorded on bricks baked in the furnace astronomical observations that extended back 1,903 years before that period which was 330 years BC when the conquest was achieved. So that's when Alexander conquered Babylon. Now that gives us a date of 2,233 BC for the founding of Babylon, which is consistent with the dates for the tribes being dispersed from around Babylon about 40 years later. So here again, we have astronomical records preserved in baked bricks that go back for 1,903 records back to when these records started. Now, we know 
that uh, you know that. The civilizations were very advanced in that time. You know, we have these pictures of, of uh, apes evolving into humans and cavemen and this sort of thing. But when we look back at these particular times, these people had amazing knowledge of mathematics that just suddenly appears. They make astronomical calculations. Uh, they, they build structures, and, and I know they build these beams, and they, when they're making these structures, they allow for special curvatures so that when you look along them, they still appear straight and not curved. I forget what the architectural uh, name for that is. But... Um, you know, we know the, the pyramids, for example, in Egypt uh, that go back to that time. And, and it's interesting if we, we look at the account of the, the pyramids, we find that the Bible talks about Abraham going from this area here in Mesopotamia and across to Egypt and that there's a, a time in Egypt where they were building pyramids just after Mestrom was there and these pyramids are very shoddy and then suddenly... The, these pyramids become, it's about 10 generations after Mesram, the pyramids suddenly become extremely accurately astronomically aligned and, and, and also geometrically extremely accurate in terms of squareness and so forth. You know, and, and you've got structures hundreds of feet and yet they're squared within you know, a few centimetres uh, and they've got features on them that are aligned to astronomical features. And, of course, that corresponds to Abraham is about 10 generations from Noah. And it's interesting that um, Josephus records that Abraham took a knowledge of astronomy and mathematics with him to Egypt. So we have all these amazing uh, correlations, but here, um, or corroboration of the biblical account. But here again, we have this date for the founding of Babylon that very closely aligns with uh, this period just after the, um, uh, the well, just before the uh, Tower of Babel event. Now, there's more. The, uh, the fourth century historian uh, Eusebius of Caesarea recorded that Iglias, the Greek king, began his reign in 2089 BC. Well, that is 1,313 years before the first Olympiad in 776 BC. Now, this appears to be the oldest chronological date assigned to a Greek kingdom, and it corresponds to just over 100 years after the dispersion. So when you think that where Greece is, further up and around, um, it's just a little bit later. As a matter of fact, I, I plotted this and I showed that when you compare all these chronologies that we have that actually list a date in terms of years, uh, they're rough, roughly proportional to their distance away from where we believe the ark landed. So, and yet they're from all different cultures, from all different historians, from all different periods. So, you know, we're putting together a picture here that is very consistent. Um, and so, uh, and the other, the other interesting thing is, again, we find that the Grecians were referred to as the sons of Javan, who was another grandson of Noah. So here we have the ancient name for Greece was named after one of Noah's grandsons, just like Egypt. So these are the historical names that were used by people back in ancient times for those particular cultures. 
And this is giving and particular this is credibility to the concept. To the biblical account and to those account, yeah. early generations yes. that are there uh, before all this sophisticated higher criticism came in. This is what the people back in those times recorded. And it's just like us talking about I was alive during the Maitland flood in 1955. I can describe it. I was I was there. I can remember seeing snow landing on Mount Sugarloaf back in the late 1950s or early 60s, whenever it was. And I know the rough period of time. You know, I was an eyewitness to that. I was there as part of the culture. You know, um, I was at a big conference yesterday talking about food safety, and I think back. I can remember when the milk was delivered to our back door, fresh from being milked in a cow and was poured into a pail that we left out and the milkman collected his shilling. You know, so <laughs> these are things. You're dating were, yourself now. <laughs> <laughs> dating yourself now. So, and I think this is what we have to respect. You know, we can have higher criticism now looking back, but these are historians that are writing back using the data that they had. And we know that a lot of that data was destroyed, like in the libraries of Alexandria and, and down through different times when different um, historical records were destroyed during battles and the res- raising of cities and, and these sort of things. Um, the other thing is, of course, that Javan is also the Hebrew name for Greece. And um, and it was used to refer to the descendants of Javan and their lands in Macedonia, Greece and Syria. Now, it's interesting that uh, uh, Dr. Young, who compiled one of the first biblical concordances back in the uh, late 1800s, um, he notes that Japheth is probably the original of a Japetus or a Yeptus, whom the Greeks considered to be the ancestor of the human race. So again, according to Greek culture at that time, um, that's the, the origin of uh, their culture, their, their, their race. The Roman historian uh, Josephus also lists many of the tribes of Europe, including Greece as being of descendants from the son of Japheth and his grandsons. Um, and um, a- another scholar, um, uh, uh, Professor Giles Dowsett of the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London points out that the ancient Armenian writers call the Armenian descendants of uh, Togarmath uh, and Ashkelanaz the sons of Goma, who was also a son of Japheth. So here we have again um, these ancient cultures all tracing their descendants back to the sons of uh, Noah. Um, Japheth had another son called Magog, and Josephus notes that the Magogites were called Scythians by the Greeks, which were the people occupying an area of southern Russia and Ukraine. Another one of Japheth's sons and a grandson of Noah was Madai, who, according to Josephus, was the father of the Medeans, who were called the Medes by the Greeks, who lived in the region south of the Caspian Sea. Now, we know Josephus uh, lived about the time of Christ. He was a Roman historian at the time, Jewish by background. But here he is. He's recording the history and what these different cultures are talking about. So the, it's amazing historical uh, collabora- uh, corroboration of the biblical account. I'm Dr Barry Harker and you're listening to Science Conversations. My guest today is Dr John Ashton, author of Evolution Impossible, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. John has been examining the history and legends of a global catastrophic flood. When we come back... 
John will focus on other types of evidence pointing to a worldwide flood. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABM Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3 abn Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. If you've just joined us, I'm Dr Barry Harker, and you're listening to Science Conversations. My guest is Dr John Ashton, author of Evolution Impossible, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. John has been examining the history and legends of a global catastrophic flood. John will now focus on other types of evidence pointing to a worldwide flood. John, tell me about China. Yes, well, um, uh, we have a, a general perception that Chinese history goes back a long way, and it certainly does. But unfortunately, uh, around the time of Christ in China, there was a, an emperor who had uh, a, a massive burning of books and, and records. So a lot of um, uh, their historical records were destroyed at that time. Uh, some chronologies have uh, survived, however, uh, and uh, one of the oldest of these is um, known as the Bamboo Annals. It has a more complex Chinese name, of course, and I'm not very good at pronouncing many of these uh, words. Uh, but um, Professor Goodrich, who is a Professor of Chinese at Columbia University, notes that this is actually the oldest preserved Chinese chronology known. And it goes back... Uh, to the First Dynasty of China, and it dates the First Dynasty of China at being 1,994 BC. And that's consistent with the dispersion model too, isn't it? Yes, yes, it, it certainly is. There is another revised um, traditional uh, date that is associated with another chronology for that uh, founding of China at 2,183 uh, uh, BC, and... Um, Goodrich also notes this as well. Uh, but both these dates are well after the dispersion of the um, tribes uh, from from Babylon and, and certainly harmonise with the... Um, with the biblical account. So even from China, and as I said, when I pointed it with China, the date is a little bit later, uh, but it, it fits because China's a little bit further away. And of course, uh, traditionally too, that's where Noah went. After the flood, Noah is, went to, uh, is said to have gone to China and, um, and, was the, and founded China. So this is that. very interesting. I hadn't heard that one before. Oh, it's recorded by yeah. Young. Uh, in Young's Concordance, as Young uh, expands the history, that uh, that's the um, uh, traditional account that uh, that Noah was um, uh, Fushi, is it? Uh, was the yes, the founder of China. Hmm. Now we have the Ebla archive, which has thrown quite a bit of light on uh, biblical history. Tell us about that. 
Oh, yes. Well, uh, again, thousands of uh, tablets were uh, discovered in this mound at Elba in um, northern uh, Syria there. And one of the fascinating things about that is that when they translated the uh, tablets, they found that they referred to the cities of the plain that are mentioned in the Bible, particularly Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, most modern uh, commentators don't want to believe that those were historical cities. And so when that uh, information was published, the actual Epiphagra um, that uh, translated those uh, tablets, who was a professor of Assyriology at the University of Rome, he was sacked. It was quite amazing because people didn't want to know that, hang on, we've got this record in stone of all these towns that are recorded in biblical history from, the, uh, from these totally independent uh, historical uh, accounts preserved in stone. Maybe that's a story we can talk about in, in a later, <laughs> yes, yes, a later that's, that's conversation. Mm. What about genomic decay? This concept that you know that uh, the genome is deteriorating so rapidly, and that if we look at the trajectory, it's not possible for humans to be tens of thousands or millions of years old. Well, well, yes, there's two sides to that. And um, again, we know that uh, DNA is accumulating errors. And so if we look at mitochondrial DNA, for example, absolute maximum that could be is 100,000 years. And it's really more realistically going to be less than 10,000 years old. Now, the other interesting aspect of this is, and people you know, say to me, uh, you, know, you know, look, you, you believe in the Bible. It's a totally non-credible account. The Bible records the ages of people before the flood and it records the ages of people after the flood. Now, before the flood, it says that people, uh, the, the patriarchs at least, they, they live roughly around about 900 years. Um, and we know that, you know, we predict that by about 2050, uh, people here in Australia will be living at least 100 years. So that's through medical technology and better diet and so forth. But then after the flood, it has their ages dropping off rapidly. Um, and so you've got, you know, Abraham, I think, around 180 years, Noah, 100, uh, Moses, 120 years, this sort of thing. Now, it's interesting, on the World Blundell Prism, it lists exactly the same scenario, at least different ages, but it has the kings before the flood living very, very long ages, and then the ages being shorter after the flood. So there's a, a consistent there. Is there a possible... Explanation for this? Well, yes, there, there, there is, and it's amazing. We know that um, DNA is accumulating errors, and when you plot the ages with time, when after the flood, the, the it fits actually a decay curve. As a matter of fact, it closely fits with high correlation the decay curve that you would fit from genomic decay. Now, this is amazing because those ages are recorded by different authors in the Bible. They were recorded, you know, a thousand years ago and, we're, and they span over a period of about a thousand years. And we find it fits a scientific decay curve, which is highly you know, unlikely that those ages were made up. And, pe and people say, well, but how could people live so long back then? Well, see, this again, if we take the Bible as a fact and we begin looking for evidence, we find amazing evidence. Now, one of the cancer treatments that's currently being developed in Europe at the present time is to give people low deuterium water. Now, deuterium 
is uh, a, uh, a heavy isotope of hydrogen. So, and when you make water from that, you get heavy water. So that's what uh, the the dam buster account was all about in the Second World War. Uh, the Germans were producing heavy water because heavy water with the uh, extra neutrons could be used to moderate um, high energy neutrons from nuclear reactions and hence help them accelerate their uh, nuclear program. And so they generated the uh, heavy water through electrolysis, big hydro, um, and using a lot of uh, electricity. And so the idea was to break the dam so they couldn't generate the electricity to make the heavy water. But the one of the characteristics of uh, heavy water is that it actually increases the rate of cell mutation. Now, if you remove deuterium from water, and, and currently in the Earth's oceans, there, there's about 150 parts per million deuterium in water. If you remove the deuterium from water, and it's the same, about the same level in, in the water that we drink, if you remove deuterium of water, cells grow much more slowly, and there's much, and hence, and the mutation rate is much lower. And so already there, this has uh, been approved in veterinary use, the use of low deuterium water. So what would happen is we know in the biblical account that the fountains of the deep opened up and we know that groundwaters are much higher in deuterium. We also know that some of the ancient waters were much lower in deuterium that have been preserved. So this fits a, a very interesting picture that if the original water on the earth was very low in deuterium, that would explain the long ages because they would grow more slowly. And also that fits the begat age because we know that sexual maturity now has reached somewhere between, you know, maybe 12, 20 years. Uh, back then it talks about uh, the men begatting children generally when they're in their 60s. They first became fathers. So again, this fits this low deuterium model uh, picture of slow development, the larger growth of animals and all this sort of thing. And then if the fountains of the deep opened up and released this extra deuterium, this heavy water, back into the ecosystem then, that would explain the increased decay rate and uh, the rapid decline in ages. So when we look for it, again, the Bible fits. We have a, a scenario uh, and, um, you know, it, it, it certainly fits in a low deuterium environment. We could expect very, very long ages. That's really interesting stuff, isn't it? Mm, yeah, Think fascinating stuff. Yeah. John, tell me about the significance of George Dodwell's work on the wobble of the Earth's axis of rotation and its significance for flood history. Yes, well, this is, again, uh, fascinating uh, material. George Dodson was the, uh, George Dodwell, rather, was the uh, government astronomer um, from uh, the early 1900s, um, uh, the Australia, South Australian government ast uh, astronomer, the early 1900s um, through to the late 1930s, I think. Um, as a matter of fact, in 1922, Dobwell led a very important expedition to the northern part of South Australia, Cordello Downs, from memory, where they observed uh, an eclipse of the sun that verified that light was deflected by a gravitational field. And um, so that's, you know, quite, he, he was quite a famous mathematician, uh, and that sort of verified some of Einstein's uh, predictions there. So he's quite a famous uh, astronomer, Dodwell, in, in his day. Now, 
He had uh, become aware of some uh, reports by uh, a British admiral, Sir uh, Algaroon uh, de Horsey, that had discussed a um, an astronomical theory relating to the tilt of the Earth's axis. And this theory had been put forward by um, a major general, uh, Professor Alfred uh, W. Drayson, who had served as uh, an astronomer royal uh, at the Royal uh, Observatory in Greenwich. Now, Professor Drayson had reported that there appeared to be an extra wobble in the wobble of the Earth's axis over and above that uh, predicted by Newcomb's formula. So that's not Newton's formula. This is Newcomb. Newcomb was an American astronomer, Simon Newcomb, uh, who worked out uh, and calculated the wobble in the tilt of the Earth uh, that occurs as the Earth moves around the sun. At times it becomes closer to Jupiter and Saturn, these large planets, and it's influenced by their gravity and, and it sets up a bit of a wobble. So those calculations were done in the late 1860s. So these are the British astronomers had noticed in the early 1900s that from earlier records there appeared to be an extra wobble superimposed over and above that calculated by Newcomb's formula. So uh, Dodwell decided to investigate this. And what he did was he looked at very old uh, records of the measurement of the angle of the Earth's tilt. Now, the angle of the Earth's tilt can be calculated from the angle of the shadow at noon on the shortest day of the year and the, and the angle of the shadow at noon on the uh, longest day of the year. And uh, so many ancient monuments marked those particular shadow points. And so he went back to old Chinese records, uh, medieval European records, Greek records, and also measurements on Egyptian temples, uh, the oldest ones being at the temples of Karnak in the Valley of the Kings. And when he plotted this data, he found that it fitted a declining sine curve. So uh, it's a bit hard to describe on radio, but... If you can imagine a pendulum or a bob swing, a lead weight swinging on a string, and it's swinging vertical, right? It's hanging vertical. If you pull it to the side and let it go, it'll swing across and then back and back, and slowly it gets less and less and less and less. So if you plotted the distance away from that mean position, that middle position, with time, you would get a, a an up and down curve like a wave, but the height of the wave would gradually decrease and the depth of the wave decrease over time. So uh, I'm trying to paint a word picture there. And that's what he observed was happening when he separated out the other calculation. Now, if you plot uh, what we call a log sine curve, you can actually calculate the sort of point of maximum displacement or uh, estimate when that maximum deflection occurred. And when he plotted his data, the curve went tangential about 2350 BC, which is very close to the date for the flood. So we know that at that time there was some massive event that shook the earth so violently that that wobble continued right through to roughly the 1900s where it's essentially disappeared now. So... Um, you know, that's, again, a massive account, of, you know, had to be some major event to shake the earth like that. And uh, my view is that, in actual fact, it corresponds to the time just after the flood when the mountain ranges were pushed up, that there was this shaking of the earth 
Whatever caused it, we don't know, but that caused a rapid movement of the plates, and as those plates moved, they pushed the, the sediments, the strata up, and formed your, your Andes, your Himalayas, your Alps, and so forth at that time. And that also fits the fact that we have these um, events where we've got the fossils found high up on the, on the mountains uh, and this sort of thing. So again, we now have a mechanism based on astronomical evidence that can explain the pushing up of these mountains in recent times just after the flood, which is again consistent with the scientific observations that we can go out and make now. So we can go and check these monuments now, we can go and check the day. Matter of fact, if uh, listeners want to look at it, if they simply Google George Dodwell manuscript, because Dodwell was writing this up as a book, unfortunately he died before he finished it, but his family has put the entire manuscript up on the internet. So you can go there now, look at his observations, check his data, check his calculations. And so that's the whole purpose of the book when I uh, put it together, was to actually provide data for people with the references. We've got so much data now, historical data, scientific data, that supports the historical accuracy of the Genesis account of a global flood. That's pretty intriguing evidence that you've produced today. John, we've got um, just a couple of minutes for you to sum up the evidences that we've reviewed Well, I was absolutely amazed when I read through the historical accounts of the chronologies, how those ancient chronologies, we've got them coming from from Persia, from Greece, uh, from uh, Egypt, from China, we've got the biblical account, and they all line up. They all give the same date at the founding of those nations and and so forth as occurring from about a hundred years onwards after the uh, the the Tower of or after the, the flood. And so or the Tower of Babel event. And so this consistency to me is very, very powerful evidence. And then when we look at the deuterium uh, we, we go to low deuterium water. As a matter of fact, there was a conference on that held just in Europe just um, a month or so ago uh, because they're very interested in the low deuterium water concept as treatments for cancer now and the health benefits of that, um, how they can slow cancers right down. And this fits the whole scenario of suddenly these long ages suddenly dropping away. You know, that, that to me is amazing evidence. And of course, to cap it off uh, Dodwell's uh, findings, you know, we've, we've got an explanation now for the formation of mountain ranges at that time in recent history. You know, it must have been an absolutely catastrophic, amazing event to rock the earth so much at that time. John, where are we going next week? There is more evidence with regard to dating. I think dating is an important issue for most people. And one of the important clues to dating is not just radiometric dating, but erosion rates. And that's one of the important areas we'll look at. That's what we're looking at next week. I'm Dr Barry Harker, and you've been listening to Science Conversations. My guest is Dr John Ashton, author of Evolution Impossible, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. Next week, our conversation will be on erosion rates, sedimentation rates, and other evidence in conflict with radiometric dating ages. Don't miss it. It's fascinating. Bye for now and God bless you.